Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 this morning. We're not going to verse 16. Hear then the word of the Lord from Mark 10, 1 through 12. I'll be reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. Jesus set out from there and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Then the crowds converged on him again, and as he usually did, he began teaching them once more. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, some transcripts say, manuscripts say, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Now, when the house of the disciples questioned him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you that you give us your words of life. If you didn't speak, we wouldn't know who you are, and we wouldn't know Jesus Christ, and we would be lost in our sins, condemned forever. So thank you for giving us your word, thank you for giving us Jesus, and thank you for giving us this passage, not an easy passage. Emotionally charged, Father, for sure. Marriage and divorce touches all of our lives to one degree or another. And so, Father, we are asking that you would comfort us and guide us and strengthen us according to your word by your Holy Spirit's power. And without your spirit, Lord, we know we cannot do anything. But we know that with him, as we think about this text, as we pray over it, as we meditate on it and seek to apply it to our lives and to our church, we know that this labor is not in vain. So we look to you now. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said in my prayer, the reality of marriage touches everyone's lives. Either you, maybe you are married yourself, or maybe you have been married. You may have parents who were married. That's not always a given. It's less and less a given these days. So you might have had parents who were not married. But even the absence of marriage affects our lives. All of your friends, family, and role models fit at least one of these categories that I just mentioned. And we have in some measure been shaped by our experience, our family, our surrounding, our city, our culture, in regard to how serious or how not so serious we understand marriage. It actually was in California where no-fault divorce began in 1969 under governor, at the time, then-governor Ronald Reagan. 
On September 4th, 1969, he signed California's Family Law Act, the nation's first no-fault divorce statute in the country. There was a commission on the family given to make recommendations to the state to help, ironically, strengthen California's marriages and reduce the state's skyrocketing divorce rate of the 60s. They had a few recommendations like mandatory pre-divorce counseling, a marriage hospital providing various rehabilitative services, a separate family court. They had all these different recommendations, but only one actually went through the commission and was approved, which was the elimination of fault as a consideration in divorce proceedings. So that was meant to strengthen California marriages. Before 1969, every state in America had divorce based on some fault in one or the other spouse. America at that point, still heirs of the Christian tradition, understood that marriage was ordained by God for the benefit not only of the two who are married, but for the society as a whole. And as such, both the church and the state had a vested interest in making sure marriages were not dissolved for insufficient reasons. By 1969, many factors had colluded to erode that concept of marriage, one being the Enlightenment and two being feminism. But uh, lest I go off on a history lesson, I will, I will um, conti- continue with, with our task before us here. But let me finish with this. Years later, Ronald Reagan actually regretted signing the no-fault divorce bill. And for good reason. This is, uh, this is from Kairos Journal. Actually, most of this information is from Kairos Journal. It says, No-fault divorce has contributed to the dissolution of the US, in the U.S. of 40 to 50% of all first marriages and 60% of all second marriages. No-fault divorce. Rather than bringing promised liberation, divorce leaves women 20 to 30% poorer than before marriage. Children living with divorced mothers experience a dreadful 38% poverty rate compared with 11% of children in two-parent homes. Experts also point to the long-term emotional trauma and deficit in social skills exhibited by children of divorce. In the face of such tragedy, the church is often alone picking up the pieces. The journal continues, in addition to teaching about, the, about preventing divorce through healthy marriages, pastors can help develop a community marriage policy by building a coalition of churches who require premarital counseling before marriage. And so it goes on with a few other recommendations. The point here is that marriage and divorce affects us all. So the statistic... One uh, divorcerate.org says 67%, 50% of first marriages, 67% of second marriages, and 74% of third marriages end in divorce. In other words, if you do it once, you're more likely, not guaranteed, but you're more likely to do it again. Before we think about even this text and marriage, we have to define marriage biblically. What is marriage? According to the Bible. Marriage is a covenant between two people. It's a spiritual association, solemnized and shepherded by the church, well, at least in Christian culture and tradition. And it's a socialist estate recognized and encouraged by the state. It's a natural institution springing from the very order of human society. It's the building block of human civilization. That's what marriage is. 
But after the Enlightenment, marriage has been changed to be defined as, and we see this even more today with same-sex marriage, so-called marriage, being approved by the Supreme Court. Now marriage is basically a voluntary sexual contract between two consenting adults. That's what marriage is, right? Today. So, that's we say marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. Today, our world is confused about what marriage is. The world is also confused about what the grounds of divorce are. Even in the church, one Protestant reformer, Martin Bucer, said there are four grounds of divorce. If you're called by God to minister in another country, you can get a divorce. Now, this is a few hundred years ago. Criminal activity, like attempted murder, is grounds for divorce. Serious illness is grounds for divorce. Um, that's... Praise God, that's not the case in Christian churches today. And if a spouse could no longer sexually serve his or her spouse, the one flesh union was severed, he argued. Von Roberts is a pastor in the UK, and he tells a story of two different people who want a divorce. One celebrity justified leaving his wife and children. He said, this is the most difficult decision I've, I've ever had to make. It would have been a lot easier to have stayed in my marriage, but I had to be true to myself. That's why I got a divorce. I had to be true to myself. One other football player in the UK, that's soccer in the US, blamed God for his divorce. He said this, I'm not proud of my record with women. I have always had an appetite to explore the delights of love and lust, and I'm afraid one partner was never going to be enough for me. It was simply the way God made me. So there's another grounds for divorce, perhaps, is this is how God made us. Well, this world is confused about what marriage is and about what divorce is and even the grounds of divorce. Maybe more popular in Christian circles is the idea that you have to be, quote unquote, in love before you get married. Where in love is defined by Disney movies, love songs, and popular culture, maybe even social media. And, and a lot of people entering into marriage don't have a good idea of what realistic marriage is. So when their feelings start to fade or they're not as hot, they start to think, what's wrong with me? I married the wrong person. Whereas if they talk to anyone who is in a real marriage, they would understand that that is actually, that real love is actually deeper than that. And, and the feelings can fluctuate from time to time. That's a foreign concept in our world today. And thus, a lot of people are scared to get married or are quick to get a divorce. And so what do we need? We need to hear God's word about marriage and divorce. We need God's word to shape our hearts and minds about what this is. Because if not, the confusion and the belittling of the world in regard to what marriage is will shape our lives and our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives and our great-grandchildren's lives. So therefore, we need to go back to the Bible and let God speak to us. And here's the main thing. When we follow Jesus, we follow his words. And if we follow Jesus' words, we must follow his words on marriage and divorce. So let's get to the text. We'll use the questions from verse two. There's a question in verse two. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That will be point one. Point two, what did Moses command? Point three would be verse 10, the disciples questioning Jesus. So we'll, we'll think about marriage and divorce in three points. Is it lawful to get a divorce for any reason? Point one, that's verse two. What did Moses actually command about divorce? And marriage, point two. And then what did the disciples, what's the whole point of all of this teaching? That's point three. 
Okay, so we'll think about those together. Let's look verse, at, at verse 1. So Jesus is in the Jordan in Judea. He's crossed the Jordan from north Galilee and going to the south. And there's a reason he's going there. And he's teaching more. So in verse 2, Pharisees approach and they say, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's the question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now in Matthew's version, in Matthew 19 verse 3, this is how the question is. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds or for any cause or any reason? So if you have a King James Version, it says, Is it lawful to divorce your spouse for any reason, any cause, any grounds? That's the question. The question is not really, is it lawful to divorce your wife? Everyone assumed, even Jesus here, that there is lawful reasons for a divorce. The question is, can it be for any reason? Now this question, the answer for Judaism at the time was actually there were three, there were three schools of thought. One school said you can only get divorced in unfaithfulness, adultery. That's the only reason for divorce. That's, one, that's the most conservative school of Jewish thought at the time. There was another school of thought that said, well, yes, that or even if your spouse spoils your meal. So if they burn your food, you can divorce them. And that's actually in the Jewish writings, the Mishnah. Okay? It's the second reason. The third one, which is even more liberal, is, and this also is there in the Mishnah, if the husband finds a woman who's more attractive than his wife, that is grounds to divorce his wife and marry someone else. So marriage in that culture was a lot like, or divorce in that culture was a lot like divorce today. So for those of us who've been in the America of the 19, uh, before 1969, when there was no no-fault divorce, the strong marriage culture there that was here in America was not in Judaism of the first century. Judaism of the first century is more like today, with almost no-fault divorce. Burning your meal, fault, divorce. Or another spouse that's more attractive, fault, divorce. You see how loose the idea of marriage was and divorce in that time. And so they come to question Jesus in verse 2. It says, but Mark tells us why they came to question Jesus. Is it because they just wanted an answer? Look at verse 2. Why did they ask Jesus? What were they doing? What did they want to do? They want to test him, right? Now, why did they want to test Jesus? He is now out of Galilee and into Judea in a part across the Jordan where John the Baptist was before he got arrested for commenting on divorce and adultery. Remember that? John, Jesus' cousin, the forerunner and prophet, was arrested and then executed for speaking up against divorce and adultery, specifically Herod's divorce. So here they are. Jesus is now in that territory. John was just executed maybe a year or two years before. And now they say, hey, Jesus, what do you think about divorce? See how they want to trap him? If we could get him to speak against divorce, we just tap on Herod's door. Hey, Jesus said this in a big crowd. What are you going to do, Herod? Herodias, the conniving, evil woman that she was as a wife, would have no doubt tried to send people to arrest Jesus. So there's the trap for Jesus. Does Jesus bite? Well, the question, is it lawful? Jesus answers their question the way he almost always does. You could learn something from this. Jesus answers a question with a question. Because a lot of times when people ask a question, they're framing it in a way that's trapping you from the start. So the best way out is just to ask another question back for clarification. So Jesus does here and he says, 
Verse 3, well, what did Moses command you? Now, before we answer that question of what Moses commanded, let's go with that first question, is it lawful? So they say in verse 4 that it is lawful because in verse 4 it says, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send the wife away. Now, where does it say that? It says that in Deuteronomy 24. Turn there if you like. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. If, if not, that's okay, you can listen, but it's in the very beginning of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is where they're getting it from. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It says, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him, because he finds something improper about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. See that in verse 1? What are, what's the grounds for divorce there? If he is displeasing to him, if she is displeasing to him, and he finds something improper about her. See how vague that is? You could drive a truck through that, right? Through that definition. Burning food could be displeasing. Oh, I find another woman more attractive. You're displeasing. You see how, when, with the, with the vague, now Moses isn't saying that, but in the words, there's that vagueness to it. So they're saying, well, Moses permitted us to it. We just need to write a certificate and then we could send her away. But that's not Moses' point here. That's what they're getting out of it. But look at what Moses' point is. He's saying, if you do divorce, write a note. That's what it's saying. And then look at verse 2. If after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, and hands it to her, and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away must not marry her again after she has been defiled, because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land your Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance. Here's the point. You can't just divorce your wife anytime you want, and then another man marries her, and then you regret that you did it, and now you want her back. You can't just toss her around. She's dependent financially for her living on her husband. For you to just divorce her for any reason, first of all, you have to write something out, which makes it more official and makes you slow down a little bit from getting a divorce. And then secondly, if you divorce her and she remarries, you cannot marry her. You can't take her back. So think twice before you just divorce your wife. So in other words, Moses is writing here to to kind of slow down and stop the abuse of women in terms of a divorce culture, okay? That's his point. The Pharisees are getting out of it. It's permissible. I can do it. It says it. I can do it. That, that's what they're getting out of it. And so, um, so Moses is writing against that. We need to understand what Moses meant here. You don't learn to fl- James Edwards says this. You don't learn to fly an airplane by following the instructions for making a crash landing. Right, And so you will not be successful. So in other words, you don't learn marriage by learning about when you can divorce. If, that's, if I'm doing premarital counseling with someone and they're saying, so when is it okay for me to divorce? And they look with like kind of anticipation. That's a red flag in my mind as a pastor, right? Okay, wait, hold on. What? Why are you going to get married if you're, if you're so open to divorce? In other words, you don't treat this text as if it's so simple to just get a divorce. That's, it's not an easy out. That's not the point of this text. It's to protect women. And so Jesus says, when you go back to Mark chapter 10, go back to Mark 10, Jesus says, why did Moses write this? Because of what? Look at Mark 10 verse 5. Why did Moses write this to the Israelites? Because of their what? 
their hardness of hearts. They had hard hearts. And therefore, it was really to buck or to stop the hardness of their hearts just running over society. So they didn't actually answer Jesus' question. What was Jesus' question? What did Moses say? Or what did Moses command? And they are saying sort of what Moses said, but they're not getting at the heart of what Moses said. And when you don't get at the heart of God's commands, you miss the heart of God. See, as Christians, we're not just trying to be minimalistic. You know, when I was a youth pastor, a common question dating couples would ask is, how far is too far physically? And that's the wrong question. What Are you looking for a line that, you know, like, what, what is that? Your, your question is, how much can I glorify God? How much can, How pure and holy can I be? How can I honor God the most with my body and with my mind and my relationship, right? So you don't ask a minimalist question, how much can I get away with and still be okay? How much can I sin and still be a Christian? That's not really a Christian-like question, right? The heart of that is hard. And that's the point. Is You don't just ask, what can I get away with? What are you commanding me, Lord? How can I honor you? I want, you own me, and I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Just tell me what to do, and I want to do it with all of my life. Okay, and so what did Moses actually command? This is point number two. So is it lawful, in a sense, yes, to get divorced? For any grounds, not necessarily. Now, number two, what did Moses actually command? Verses six through nine. Now, what books, Bible quiz here, before we go to verses six through nine, what books did Moses write in the Bible? Christians here, which ones? Name them. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Good. Those are the first five books. Moses wrote those. And so when Jesus is asking what Moses commanded, you can get from any of those five books what Moses commanded, right? He also wrote Psalm 90. And so Jesus is going not to Deuteronomy. He's going to go to Genesis and look at verse 6. What did Moses say? But from the beginning of creation, God made them, quote, male and female. That's Genesis 1.27. And then you get to verse 7 and he quotes Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave father and mother and cling to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So Jesus here is actually going to the heart, not just of what God permits, but what God intends. Not how much can I get away with. God, what do you fully intend for my life and marriage? And so Jesus is going to the heart. A soft heart who loves God is going to go to the design of God. And that's where Jesus is going here. Notice he says in verse 7 or verse 6, it's male and female. So this is heterosexual. Okay, which means same gender marriage is not marriage. Okay, same gender marriage is not marriage in God's eyes or in those who would think God's thoughts after him. Look at verse 7. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother. In other words, marriage becomes the most important human relationship you have. Even more important than your relationship with your own children and with your own parents. Children are not more important than your spouse in terms of relational priority. Now, everyone's important. Everyone's made in God's image. But relational priority for you, your spouse is more important relationally or higher priority than your children. And actually, that's what blesses your children. Just so you know, if you want to be a blessing to your children, honor your spouse. And that is the best. That's the first step in being a good parent, you know. And so that, that that's the priority that God set, that a, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his or be joined to his wife. 
James Edward writes, marriage is second only to obedience to God in sacredness. And then look at verse 8. So not only is it highest priority, but the two will become what? One flesh. In other words, polygamy is out. You know that they're trying to pass polygamy laws today now? I don't know if you've heard. It was just bound to happen. We were all, everyone was saying that before. Now that same gender, same sex, so-called marriage is out. The polygamists are now making their case. In one sense, rightfully so. They might as well. They have a, they have a case, given the, the common definition of marriage today. But biblically speaking, polygamy is out. It's a one-flesh union between husband and wife. So polygamy is a violation of marriage. Adultery, joining yourself physically to another person who's not your spouse, is also a, a betrayal of this one-flesh union. And then look at verse 9. Jesus draws a conclusion from this. If they become one flesh, what's Jesus' conclusion? Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man what? Separate or put asunder. So if we're talking about divorce and re- if they're asking a question about divorce, Jesus is saying, before we even talk about divorce, let's talk about marriage. And let's talk about God's design for marriage. And let's talk about God's intention for marriage, that when God puts two together, man must not put Asunder, man must not separate. In other words, marriage is permanent, joined together by God. Do you believe in arranged marriages? Maybe you don't. We have a neighbor here who's um, on our street who had an arranged marriage. But actually, biblically speaking, every marriage is an arranged marriage. According to this, right? Verse 9 says, who joined them together? God. If God has joined them together, that's an arranged marriage by God. So every marriage, in that sense, is an arranged marriage. And so divorce, now you can't, take, you can't take divorce lightly if you take the one flesh union seriously. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. So, so keen and so insightful on the way churches disagree on divorce. He says, All churches, I mean they all, these churches, regard divorce as something like cutting up a living body as a kind of surgical operation. Some of these churches think the operation so violent that it can't be done at all. That's why some churches teach no divorce ever. Others admit, admit it as a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having both your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership or even deserting a regiment. I like that picture. You know what divorce is like? It's like cutting off your two legs more than it is dissolving a business partnership. Because the two have become what? One flesh. And when you get a divorce... Now, is it, is it ever okay to cut off your legs, to amputate your legs? Yes, in extreme situations, right? You get, you get a disease or you get something on your leg and it's going your, your, to kill you. And the option is to amputate your leg. Should you do it? Yes, if you want to preserve life. So it's not to say that it should never happen. But divorce is not like dissolving a business partnership. It's like cutting off both of your legs. It's an extreme situation that, that, is, that is very, very uncommon, so to speak. And that's, that's a more powerful and accurate image of what divorce is like. Okay, so that's what Moses teaches. Moses teaches that it's between one man and one woman. He teaches that it's um, a higher priority than other relationships, verse 7. He teaches that the two become one flesh. And in verse 9, Jesus teaches us now that therefore, because they're one flesh, this marriage is permanent. It's permanent. Okay, so what's God's point on the issue? That's, so that's point number two. Let's go to point number three, our last point now. What is God, what's the whole point? Look at verse 10. 
Now in the house, the disciples questioned Jesus again about the matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And also if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So here what Jesus is saying is when you commit adult or when you, when you divorce sinfully or wrongly and then you remarry, what are you committing? You say the word. What are you committing? Adultery. These are, these are heavy words. And I just want to say as a, as the one preaching here today, I don't write the mail, right? I deliver it. Um, this is not, I, I understand that this is not, this is not comfortable. And I was praying, I've been praying for our church this week. I understand that there's different situations we're in, but we need to, first we need to grasp what God's word says. And then I want to show you why it's good, um, given our different situations. But here, here's what he says. If you divorce your spouse and you remarry, you're guilty of adultery. So you need to feel the weight of what divorce does. Because if this is what divorce is and you remarry, you're committing adultery. And what are the consequences of adultery? Revelation 21.8 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake or the lake of fire burning with sulfur. This is the second death. The wages of sin is death. That's the second death. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says this. Heavy words here. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, there it is, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that, that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In one sense, even if you have never been divorced or committed adultery, in one sense we're all guilty, aren't we? Are we all sinners? I mean, none of us deserve to inherit the kingdom of God. All of us deserve the lake of fire. But here's the good news. Though marriage is intended to be permanent on earth, marriage on earth will one day fade for the marriage that will never fade. The marriage between Christ and the, the church. And Revelation 19, 6 through 9, you could do, read that for homework, but in Revelation 19, 6 through 9, there's this celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will celebrate in the new heavens and the new earth with Christ forever and ever. And there will be no marriage between you and your spouse here on earth. We will be married to Christ as the bride, the church, and we will celebrate forever and ever and ever. But turn to Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, if you can. It's a harder book to find. It's right after Daniel. Turn to the left, Hosea 3, verse 1. If not, just listen. I want to share good news here. Good news in Hosea 3, verse 1. It says this. Then the Lord said to me again, God said to Hosea, the prophet, go again and show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. So go get your wife who's actually been prostituting herself. Go get your wife and show love to her. That's what God commanded Hosea. And then look at verse chapter 3, verse 1. Just as what? Just as the Lord loves who? The Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. 
And you're like, why raisin cakes? Raisin cakes was what they ate in worshiping other idols. Okay, it was a, it's, a, it's a ritualistic feast. So here's the point. God tells Hosea, your wife committed adultery against you. Go get her and take her back and love her. Just like God does what? He takes back adulterous Israel. Here's the good news. The good news is that though we, spiritual or actual adulterers, we are all condemned before God in our sin. Are we not? And yet, God does not divorce his bride. He comes to them. He dies for them. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her washing her with the water of the word. And so here's the good news, is that when we are guilty of our adultery and our sin and our unfaithfulness and our disobedience and our hard-heartedness, where we just want the permission to get away with whatever we can get away with, we deserve hell for that. God sends Jesus and God says, I will never divorce my people. I will send my son to die for this people and then marry this people by his death. And by his resurrection. So Jesus Christ dies on the cross to pay for our sins. So that we can be forgiven of all of our sins. Past, present, and future. Amen? Amen. Praise God. If we read Mark 10 verse 1. Jesus is on his way to Judea from Galilee. Where is he on his way to? To Jerusalem. Why is he on his way to Jerusalem? To do what? To die for our sins. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That all of us sinners. So if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, let me say a word to you. Let me say a good word to you. We are all sinners who deserve God's judgment. But God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, rise from the dead, so that if you will trust in Jesus Christ and repent from your sins, God will forgive you. He'll give you eternal life. He'll make you part of his bride. He'll give you his Holy Spirit and he will transform you not only now but into eternity. And you will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is an invitation from God to anyone here who's not a Christian. God is calling you this morning to trust in Jesus and turn from your sins and find forgiveness that he has secured by his death and resurrection on your behalf. This is the gospel. This is our good news. So, as we think about this really high standard of marriage and this really bleak and dark-looking picture of divorce, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel, right? Because we all fall short in some way or another. But I need to just give a short word on what the rest of the Bible teaches. Is it ever okay? Now, I'm leaving Mark 10, kind of done with Mark 10. Is it ever okay to get a divorce, though, biblically? Can you get a divorce and not sin against God? And the answer is yes, in two exceptions. Okay, I'm going to give you the verses for these two exceptions when it's not sinful to get a divorce. Number one, it's in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. Now some, yeah, go to Matthew 19, verse 9. As you're turning to Matthew 19, it's just one book to the left of Mark. As you're turning to Matthew 19, just know this. The world says it's never a sin to get a divorce. It's okay. Some Christians say it's always a sin to get a divorce. I don't believe that. I think it's always, as I've been taught, it's always a result of sin that divorce happens. But it's not always necessarily that you are sinning when you get a divorce. Here are the grounds for a divorce. Look at Matthew 19, verse 9. Jesus says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for what? Sexual immorality or marital unfaithfulness, and marries another, commits adultery. So one ground 
for divorce that God accepts. Again, that doesn't mean God recommends. He actually doesn't recommend, but it's permissible, is in the case of immorality. Okay? And that's porneia. That's actually a very broad word for sexual immorality. That's one ground. The second ground is in 1 Corinthians 7. You could turn there to 1 Corinthians 7, 15. 1 Corinthians 7, 15. I'm in 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 says this. Well, first of all, I guess, well, let's start in verse 13. If, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. For the unbelieving husband is set apart for God by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is set apart for God by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be corrupt, but now they are set apart for God. So don't, if you're married to an unbelieving spouse, that's not grounds for divorce. But, verse 15, if the unbelieving spouse, what? Leaves, then what? Let him do so. Let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. So when is it permissible to get a divorce? Either number one, in the case of immorality, because that is breaking the covenant. I mean, again, that doesn't mean it has to be, it can can be mended, but in one sense that's permissible. Secondly, in the case of an unbelieving spouse initiating leaving the marriage. So here's what John Stott says. Jesus' reason for adding this acceptive clause was to clarify that the only remarriage after divorce, which is not tantamount to adultery, is that of an innocent person whose partner has been unfaithful. For in this case, the unfaithfulness has already been committed by the guilty partner. Now listen to this. This is very important from John Stott. Jesus' purpose was emphatically not to encourage divorce for this reason, but rather to forbid every other reason. Again, Jesus is not saying get divorces. Divorces are painful no matter what. So he's not recommending it, but it's permissible in, in that case. And so John Stott recommends for pastors and for you as Christians, he says this. For some years now, I have followed a simple rule. He's a pastor. That whenever anybody asks me a question about divorce, I refuse to answer it until I have first talked about two other subjects, namely marriage and reconciliation. If we allow ourselves to become preoccupied with divorce and its grounds, rather than with marriage and its ideal, we lapse into Phariseeism. So let's not just think, think about divorce. We've got to focus on marriage and God's design here. Okay, I want to encourage you now as, as before we close in prayer. And the encouragement is this. Not only did Christ die for our sins that we're all guilty of, and some of us are guilty of sins in this area of marriage and divorce, Christ died for it. When he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. You don't have to pay. That's the good news. There is no penance. There is nothing you you just trust in Christ. He died for our sins. God poured out his wrath on Christ for our sins. We are free to be forgiven and receive it and then live life from this day forward with joy and and cleansing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9, you can be clean. And a lot of you already are clean. I'm just telling you what you already know. A lot of you who have this in your past, you're already clean. I'm just reminding you that Christ is, has powerfully and completely cleansed you through his death and resurrection. But with that, we get power. We get power to now live a, a godly married marriage culture life. So let me close with some application just before we go. 
We have to take Christ's words by faith. We just have to live on them and just trust that he knows what's best. Because sometimes we don't agree with it, especially when it's out of sync with our culture. Um, let me give you an example of faith just briefly before I go into application. So my wife and I, sometimes we joke around when we're driving on the freeway. You know, you get into these carpool lanes that transition from one freeway to another. And they go up really high. And you go to like another freeway. And especially when they're new and you've never driven on it, you, you've never driven on it. So it's very unfamiliar to you. And so sometimes we drive and I would say, man, this drive right now is by faith. Because as you're going up high and you're going really high, like what if the road wasn't finished? Right? I mean, how do I know it's not finished? I've never seen it. I'm just trusting government uh, authorities, right? I'm trusting regulations. I'm trusting that they didn't put cones there. I'm trusting the construction workers that they did a good job. In other words, I am driving by faith. I've never driven that road. But I just trust that these things are going to uphold me and my family, and I'm not going to drive off a cliff into our death. That's very similar to how we live the Christian life. When God speaks, he's just kind of laying out the road for us, and you just drive it not knowing exactly where it goes. But you know that God is good, and you know he's reliable. And so when I read Mark 10, I'm just saying let's take it for what it is, and, and, and Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, and let's just live by God's words because the gospel has freed us to do this. So, let me encourage you as we close. Married couples, married couples, listen to me for a second. God personally gave you your spouse. It was an arranged marriage by God. You don't even have to be Christian for this to be true. Every legitimate marriage is arranged by God himself. That's what it says. What God has joined together. So I want you to look at your spouse, maybe not right now, and just thank God, thank God for giving you your spouse. That is a personal activity of God to you in your life. Proverbs says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. God has joined you together. Yes, your spouse is a sinner, and yes, you are a sinner, but there is common grace in your lives. And if you're a Christian, you have saving grace in your marriage. And sanctifying grace in your marriage. So thank God for the gift of marriage, permanent as it is in this earthly world. Number two, realize that every marriage will have problems and sin and disappointment and tension and tests and trials. When your marriage has trouble, don't freak out like it's the end of the world. That's normal. You marry a sinner and you're a sinner, you're going to have trials. Third, along with your spouse, I want to encourage you to fight sin in yourself and fight sin in your spouse for the preservation of your marriage. Don't look at your spouse as an enemy. You, the two have become what? One. So if you look at your spouse as an enemy, who are you looking at as an enemy? Yourself. You hurt your spouse, you hurt yourself. Because she is you. And you are her. So fights. Now what's trying to destroy you and her? Sin. So what do you fight? Sin. You're not the, your spouse is never the enemy. Indwelling sin in your spouse is the enemy, and indwelling sin in yourself is the enemy. So fight sin, not each other. Okay? For First Southern Baptist Church members, single or married, pray and seek to strengthen a culture, a healthy a culture of healthy marriages in this church. We want this church to be, and this church actually is already. I was thanking some of you that I greeted earlier today for how long and how faithful you've been in your marriages. Praise God for that. We want a healthy marriage culture here. And even for divorcees and, and those who are struggling in marriage, we want healthy, we want this to be a safe place to work through issues. 
Not where everyone's nice and polished and everyone has a clean smile and there's no problems. No, we want this place to be a place where there's grace for sin and grace for sinners. So cultivate that. If you're a single desiring marriage, I would say understand what marriage is and understand that your biggest issue is fighting sin in your own life. If you're a single man, make sure you're not caught up in Hollywood, Hollywood's picture of what true love is and what true beauty is. Pornography is rampant. What is it? Eight or nine out of ten men struggle with it. So don't let that shape your view of marriage. That distorts and destroys marriages and it distorts a marriage culture. And it will make you discontent when you end up getting married. If you're single or you're a divorcee or you're frustrated by the fact that you're missing your spouse or maybe you're a widow and you say, I love God. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you what? The desires of your heart. I love God and I don't have a spouse. PJ, I love God. And it's painful to be alone. Why? Why does God have this for me? My my response would, would be, first of all, to say I don't know exactly why. And I would just rather sit and grieve with you and feel the, the, the emptiness or the pain of it. Now, some of you have singleness and you're saying, this is awesome. And praise God, because that is, that is a gift as well. But for those who feel the pain of it, I would just want to sit there and feel the pain. And then maybe eventually, after, if the time is ever right, maybe appropriately say, you know, we can't know for sure why, but we know that God is good. I don't know why. But we know he's good. And we know that when we look back from heaven, we'll be thankful for everything God does. And I, that, that's not a cheap answer. I don't know why. And I know it's painful. But just like when you lose a spouse or when you, when, a, when you lose a child or a loved one to death, do we know all the answers why? No, we don't. And so is it appropriate to grieve? Yes. And even grieve with hope. But we have hope. And so we grieve and we just say, God, you're good. I don't know why. We cry with each other. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. If you're a teenager here, and your, your parents have an enduring marriage, here's an application you need to do today. Go up to your parents and say, thank you, thank you for staying committed to the marriage. Thank you. Thank you that the, I, I, you know, in application, I did this to my mom this morning just in preparation, but say, thank you for, for keeping for me and my brothers in a home where we have not dealt with the effects of divorce that can't even be traced in terms of, it's not incurable and God is gracious, but there are effects in lives that I just want to thank you. And I would say to you, if you're, if you have parents, even if you're, even if you're older, if you have parents who are still alive, thank them, thank them for it. Jesus upholds marriage as a good gift of God because it points to Christ in the church. And so here's the question for you as I close, will you uphold marriage according to Jesus' words, in the way you live and in the way you interact in our world today. Not just for Christians, but for non-Christians. God needs, or God calls the church to be a light in this area of marriage in our society. Let's pray. Father, this we, like every church, I mean, we're all sinners saved by grace. We thank you for the gift of your word and your teaching on this topic. Lord, we know there's many questions that can be asked and many discussions to be had. Father, right now, I actually particularly want to pause and thank you for the single moms 
in our church, who are heroic in their sacrifice and service, who do fatherhood and motherhood for their children. What a, what a blessing. We pray that we can support them as the heroes that they are for their endurance and love and for the way you uphold and use them in the lives of their children. Father, we want to thank you for your grace that covers a multitude of sin. We know your grace never gives us a license to sin, but it gives us covering for our guilt and grace to change. And so that's what we're praying for, Lord. Thank you for the marriages here. I, I look out on our church membership and I just know, I, there are marriages for 67 years, some in the 70, one marriage in the 70s, I think it's 72 years of faithful sticking to it Two sinners bound together by grace. What a privilege, Lord, for us younger singles and our younger married couples here. Thank you for the rich heritage in this room. And thank you, Father, even for the brokenness in this room that you are going to work together for good and have been working together for good. You make beauty out of ashes, Father. And so we thank you that even in the divorces and remarriages that are here, we thank you that you still make it a beautiful thing. You forgive us of the sin, you cause repentance, and then you start to make it beautiful again. What a joy to see your work in our church family. Please continue to help us to grow in these things. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.